0: This morning, we'll be dealing with Luke 6, um, largely 1 through 5. And 1 through 5 will serve as an example that will be repeated with some differences, um, some particular differences, but largely what we learn in 1 through 5, then we would read from our conclusions in 1 through 5, we would read into 6 through 11. So, in other words, I'm not going to directly address all 11 verses, but I will address them by addressing the first portion, the issue at hand in 1 through 6, which then is, again, further what we conclude we would simply roll over into 6 through 11 and apply it the same way. So, we'll handle the whole text in one way, and that is by uh, tick for tack through 1 through 6 or 1 through 5, and then we'll let that then speak to 6 through 11. The Pharisees play an important role, as you know, as one who has read through the Gospels or you've heard preaching on the Gospels or you knew something of uh, early uh, church history. The Pharisees play an important role throughout the Gospels. So it's important for us, and we're given an opportunity here at the outstart of Luke's Gospel, to then get a sense for what they teach or kind of be able to wrap our minds around what they stand for so that we can better understand the way that Christ is speaking to them. Sometimes we might be confused and we simply might roll over into the idea that Pharisees are hypocrites, case closed. But it might be better if we could more fully understand exactly what's going on with the Pharisees, and then we'll understand exactly for our benefit what the Lord is teaching and instructing us as He engages the Pharisees. So, in order to do so this morning as we look at our Lord and His engagement with the Pharisees, I want to begin with this question, maybe posed to you in your mind to kind of wrap your mind around a little introduction into the idea of who exactly are or what do they stand for, that is, the Pharisees. The question that I would propose is did the Pharisees, as you think of it, did the Pharisees ever get anything correct? Right? So, so, so that would be kind of a, a, the way that we're reading into the text immediately is they're enemies. Okay, fair enough. But, but step back just a little bit and then begin to wrestle a little bit more clearly with what is going on here. Because otherwise we might miss the import of the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees because we're kind of just assuming they're incorrect at whatever's going on here. So, Enough. Okay, but but how? And then how are they incorrect so as to wrestle with our own thoughts? Are we incorrect in the way that we're approaching a particular issue? Because he's addressing them in order that we also might be addressed. So what are their precepts? What are they coming to the discussion with? Or what is their slant or what is their angle? The answer to did the Pharisees ever get anything correct? The answer is yes. They did. Indeed in in fact, the Pharisees were highly esteemed among the common folk. It, it, was, it, was, it was higher A-list theologians, if you will, that were hated by the populace. But the common folk looked at the Pharisees as, you know, uh, you know I can't be you, but I appreciate you. What you can do, who you are, what you stand for, what you say, sure. They were actually in this context where our Lord's ministry is being conducted. They are highly esteemed among most of the populace, the common folk. As Jewish scholars, they affirmed the existence of angels. That too is correct. As they look at the Old Testament, as they consider spiritual life, they affirmed as a community of scholars the existence of angels. They even affirmed the idea of the resurrection. Further, they performed regular exposition and teaching ministry out of the Old Testament in the place of synagogues, and they presented the entire Old Testament as God's Word. Further, and we don't have time to go there exactly, but if I could just represent to you, it'd be a great text to look over. It's a, maybe you've uh, read it before, Matthew 23, and what is commonly referred to as the seven woes that Jesus preaches against the Pharisees and the scribes. But I'll just give you a little snippet of it so that we can kind of continue to build our case here of grasping what is at stake in the Pharisees and in our Lord here in this engagement that we might recognize what is here for our benefit. Matthew 23, 1 through 3, to the point that the Pharisees do get a few things correct. Jesus says this, quote, "...the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat." This is our Lord speaking to the crowds that have gathered, with them present." So later in the text comes the woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. But so far, this is how it opens. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. So again, uh, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's going to follow or listen to or practice what a Pharisee is doing? This expression of they sit on Moses' seat is an expression of authority. Now, again, there could be some debate, and there is debate within that text of interpretive uh, work. Is it they assumed Moses' seat and unfairly took upon themselves that sense of authority? Or did they simply have that authority by means of preaching and teaching, so on and so forth, what was correct? Nonetheless, our Lord addresses at this point to the crowd, they're in a place of authority, They're preaching, they're teaching, expositing Old Testament texts. So practice and observe whatever they tell you from the text. Well, then we're left to ask, well, then what's the problem with them? If they affirm the existence of angels, the resurrection, core tenets of the Old Testament, they performed exposition, they taught the Old Testament in the synagogues, they presented the entire scope of the text as the Word of God, what's the problem then? I have always thought wherever they're present, there's always a problem. Sure. Well, the, why are they at odds with Jesus if they too are teachers, instructors in the Word of God? We could push it maybe even just a little further, setting up the text to see what it means that our Lord engages them in the way that he does is essentially Jesus has more in common with the Pharisees in this context, that is the first century context of his own ministry, than almost any other Jews at that time. Well, then what's the problem? Well, if we were to go to the rest of Matthew 23, as I have mentioned, the sermon of the woes to the Pharisees, I'll give you a small little piece of it as we build our case of understanding the Pharisees, understanding ourselves in light of this text, and perhaps our Pharisaism also, that what the Lord engages would engage us. Matthew 23, 3 through 4 provides the answer of what is the ongoing problem. Our Lord speaks this way, quote, so practice, remember, I already read for you this portion of verse 3, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, comma. Okay, so, so we're getting to something. Yea, on one side, in the seat of Moses, in the preaching of the text, or in the expositing of the text, practice and observe. What they tell you, but not what they do. What do you mean? He goes further. For they preach, but do not practice. Now we're getting closer to the problem at hand. Not so much as perhaps what's being said about Moses in particular moments or at particular times. Certainly at others, yes, but not across the board. Every single time they opened their mouth, they were wrong. No, no, but, but even if they're right, they're right in what they say, but that's all they do is they say. They don't do. Now, just to give a context to how, if you were a Pharisee at this point in time, how you would feel. You know, you'd take your clothing and that expression of wrath and you'd rip your shirt or or toss on dust and ash and sackcloth, throw yourself on the floor, throw a fit. Maybe, you know, sometimes you'd see people just going crazy in the streets. Maybe that's how you'd feel as a Pharisee at this point in time when the accusation in front of the public is, you say, but don't do. You think, what? That's an outrageous thing to say. Pharisees, would have been outraged with the accusation. They maintained, indeed, a rigorous schedule and kept a long list of rules and observances for the purpose of righteousness. But our Lord here says that they don't practice. Just to give you a little color from uh, history here, there's a brief uh, uh, recording of the Mishnah, which is literature that was provided from Pharisaical oral traditions prior even recorded here, the text I'm reading for you, prior to the birth of our Lord. Keep it in context here as a historical text in light of that culture where our Lord says, they say, but they do not do outrage. Nobody does more than us. To give you a little picture of where they would have been arguing for themselves at this point in time, I read for you, 40 additional strict regulations by Pharisees commanded of the people in order that they might keep the Sabbath holy. This is where they would go around and then begin to additionally teach you, the populace, what it means to remain holy, what it means to keep the Sabbath sacred. In case you're wondering, leave it to us, we'll fill in the details. And this is what it reveals. The 40 prohibitive acts on the Sabbath for the sake of righteousness. Number one, he who sows is in violation of the Sabbath. He who plows, reaps, binds, sheaves, threshes, winnows, selects fit or unfit produce, grinds, sifts, kneads, or bakes. Any of this is prohibitive on the Sabbath. As if that wasn't clear enough, they continue He who shears wool, washes wool, beats wool, dyes wool, spins wool, weaves wool, makes two loops, weaves two threads, separates two threads, ties, unties, sews two stitches, tears in order to sew two stitches. He who traps a deer, slaughters it, flays it, salts it, curds its hide, scrapes it, cuts it up. He who writes two letters, he who erases two letters, In order to write two letters. He who builds. He who tears down. He who puts out a fire. He who kindles a fire. He who hits with a hammer. He who transports an object from one domain to another. Lo! These are the 40 generative acts of labor. Prohibited on Sabbath. May the Sabbath be kept holy. The Lord enters in and says. Practice and observe what they tell you when they sit themselves in the seat of Moses, but don't do what they do, because actually they're preaching, but they're not practicing. In fact, the outrage would continue when they know their culture, they know their list, they know their rules, they know their practice, they know their regulations. In fact, the Pharisee, the name Pharisee means separatist one who is separate from that which is common, maintaining a sense of holiness and righteousness. That is their identity. So how dare he say that we don't do? So how in the world could they be accused, in light of all of this that we have presented, even just so far, In historical literature as well, proving the culture at the time, in practice by the Pharisees, how in the world could they be accused of not practicing? And the answer is this, in order to give us a little insight into how our Lord addresses our own sense of Pharisaism as He addresses here those who are practicing Pharisees at the time. The answer that is important for each of us as we'll see through Luke 6 is this, Because the Pharisaical law observance, even that which I have read for you, denies the law's actual purpose and is therefore, in that denial, no observance at all. Do you see what I'm getting at? It denies, though it might be exterior rigidity, it denies its purpose. And if it denies its purpose and pursues simple external conformities and separatism to maintain a sense of self-righteousness, it is therefore altogether no observance of the law at all. In other words, as we see with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, each and every one of the commandments as implied by the word of God in the listing of the commandments, to observe what the law forbids. Just tell me the ten things I can't do. Okay, in order to do what the, in order to observe, or, excuse me, to observe what the law forbids, yet neglect What the law requires is actually a form of law-breaking. Let me just give you one small picture as we move forward. Matthew 23. You don't have to turn there. I'll simply read and then sometime go over 23. Matthew 23 is he executes this dialogue and preaches these woes to the Pharisees. But I'll give you one little woe to you that is read here. Which again, putting it in perspective, to observe what the law forbids, yet neglect at that very same time. What the law therefore requires is actually a form of law breaking. Matthew 23, 25, and 26 is the one I'm going to read for you just briefly. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, now hear what the Lord is describing here. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. Now, notice, it's not that they're not doing anything. They are cleaning the outside. Oh, you blind Pharisee. First... Clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside then also may be clean. This is the irony of legalism. When one observes what the law forbids, that is through greater and stricter withdrawal and separation. When one observes what the law forbids, just tell me what I can't do. With no pursuit of what it therefore requires you to do. He is actually breaking the law. In other words, love for God is not simply the absence of sin. Now notice, I say not simply. there's nothing simply about absence of sin, but that's not the sum total of our pursuit. as critical and as important as it is. Love for God is not. Only the absence of sin, but also includes the active pursuit of righteousness. This the Pharisee has no concept of. This is the mind of the legalist. If I just do what I'm, if I just don't do what I'm not allowed to do, then leave everything else alone. My relationship with God is a sense of self-righteousness, self-holiness, self-cleansing, marked by abstinence from sin, but is left dry and involves no active pursuit of what the law requires. Here in Luke 6, Jesus will show that the purpose of the law is indeed the absence of sin but also the pursuit of righteousness and gratitude. Now, to set the context up of how the nature and purpose of the law is indeed further for the pursuit of righteousness and holiness, I want to set the context up as we look at the text of Luke 6 now in our text for this morning. Again, I'm going to handle 1 through 5 mainly. And then uh, we can kind of take what we glean from 1 through 5 and apply it to 6 through 11 from these both episodes largely teaching the same instruction. And the context is set up for you to grapple with what's going on here between Jesus and the Pharisees. The context is set up for you very carefully as you notice in verse 1. It's set up with on the Sabbath. Okay, so so now we're engaging. That's what we're going to engage over is the idea of Sabbath. And and this is how we're wrestling with what does the law require? What is it forbidding? What is it that we do in light of the law on Sabbath? And then verse 6, the same episode or the second piece of the one episode with the healing of the disabled individual is also verse 6 on Sabbath another Sabbath. So, again, we're taking these two episodes and understanding this is the wrestling point, the issue of the law, particularly here wrestling over the concept of the Sabbath. The issue at hand between both episodes lies at the heart is working on the Sabbath. Now, what is the working on the Sabbath that is taking place? Um, Again, as I read for you that very particularized list, where uh, maybe you caught in there, you cannot erase two letters so that you can then write two letters. You know, okay, right, we're, we're, we're theological nitpicking at this point in time, right? I mean, we're, 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 over, we're, we're over committing to what work principle really is at this point in time. For what purpose? For the Pharisees to use as a weapon of oppression, overstating our case on the work principle. So what is their axe to grind with the disciples in the first episode? It's the rubbing of the grain. This is, this is the working. It's the violation. Aha, I've got you. You know what the Sabbath principle is. There is no working allowed on the Sabbath. Do you not know the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 10? But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Okay, then in a a, a festive rest, in my resting upon and receiving his provisions, reminding myself I'm a creature and that he is a creator, I need rest, he's provided rest, he rests not, he is not sustained by anything outside of himself, this I recognize on Sabbath that he gives to me, how then do I practice it? Well, you shall not do any work, rest, grasp that you're a creature and that he alone is a creator. That sense of provision, that sense of God's goodness to creation was wielded in the hand of a legalist to oppress. So what they're actually going after in these two episodes is this idea that Jesus and his disciples are working on the Sabbath, how so by rubbing grain. Notice the text, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain. Now, right there, you'd think by the time we jump to verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Maybe we're thinking, well, they're stealing grain, right? Because they're walking from one place to another, they're cutting through a field. But if you look at the provisions in the Old Testament, indeed the Pharisees knew, there is a provision that you are allowed to pluck from someone's field as you pass through And again, it's for sustaining and nourishment and so on and so forth. Now, you can't wield out, I don't know, a reaper's tool of some sort and start hacking down parts of their field and bagging them up and hauling them away. That was not the provision. But there is no stealing effect in this text. The disciples are plucking grains as they pass through someone's field. It's not like they're getting their bellies gorged as they're simply doing this for sustaining purposes. That's not even the violation. The violation is the rubbing of the grain. That is food preparation. You should have did that yesterday. So, you see the mindset going into this? I mean, really? I mean, you see what's going on. Then the other aspect, not just the works principle and the rubbing the grain... But on the healing of the disabled man, verse 6, on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching a man, or was teaching and a man, was there whose right hand was withered. This man is disabled. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. That is Jesus. They're zeroing in. Now notice the, the, the way that Luke writes it. There's a disabled individual here. And the scribes and the Pharisees doing what? Watching Jesus. Look at look at their heart's attitude toward the entire situation, the entire context. They're examining the Lord to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Law violation, working principle. You cannot heal. That would be an act of working, a violation of Sabbath law. Therefore, clearly showing us, God, and the whole world, you're not holy. You're not righteous. You're not obedient. You see how they're seeing the law in the way that it functions, both for themselves and their sake of self-righteousness and holiness and separatism from that which is common, and the honor of those who look and say, wow, they're holy. They really got their stuff together. You see that? This is how they're seeing the law Function. Then it continues to see whether he would whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might find a reason to accuse him. So in these both of these episodes, there is a violation that they're hoping to gain with him. They're hoping to trap him in the sense of working on the Sabbath. How then, let me ask as we explore, we must ask as we see these situations, we do hear the law, you shall not do any work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are looking at it and saying, he's working. And we're saying, how exactly? Well, by preparing. They're preparing food. That is Sabbath violation. They're working. He's healing a disabled individual. That's an act of work. They're in violation of the law, so we must ask fairly, how exactly are they wrong here? They're looking at it legalistically, and and I think maybe I've lost half of you on, you already know how they're wrong, but stick with me, pretend you don't know the conclusion yet. How are they wrong exactly, right? Because there are statements here that say, you shall not do any work. They're looking at the law, and they're looking at the situation, well, notice Jesus' answer that is somewhat, mind you, somewhat a slap in the face of a Pharisee, right? A Jewish scholar, an individual who indeed teaches and explains Old Testament, sees it as the Word of God. And then at this point, he says, look at, look at his uh, point of execution upon them in verse 2. Some of the Pharisees, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And notice Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, have you not read? So already it's like, ooh I have read it, you know, right? But y- 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 you must not have. No, I've read it. I know what it says. No, no, you, you, okay, you've read it, but you haven't really read it. This our Lord gets at as he gives a response. Let me just read the full response and let's get at how this speaks to explaining how they really are wrong here over this issue of the law. Verse 3, Jesus answered them, have you not read what David uh, did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest eat." Now, you see, that's quite a loaded statement, right? He did what was not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, how does this address the issue with the Pharisees? Let me just give you a brief kind of recap on the historical situation with David in case you're unfamiliar. As indeed, they would not have been. So what's going on with David and eating something that's unlawful and giving to his men? And how does that speak to the disciples pulling grain on the Sabbath? The historical situation is simply this, and you could look at 1 Samuel uh, 21 is where this actually takes place in the Old Testament text, 1 Samuel 21. But David has already been anointed, historically speaking, at this point in the episode that our Lord zeroes in on as an immediate illustration of what he himself is doing with his disciples. At this point, historically speaking, David was already anointed by Samuel to be the king over Israel. Was he king over Israel in that sense of office? No, at this point he is fleeing Saul. And anyone vaguely familiar with that remembers how Saul rivaled against David, chased him and sought to take his life. He saw the competition that was coming. So here the situation is David is anointed to be king over Israel. He's fleeing and running from Saul. Now he comes up and he shows himself to the priest, Ahimelech. When he shows at the tent or at the tabernacle here at this place of worship, he shows himself to the priest, he and his men are without any food. So you're running, you're fleeing for your life, you're hungry, you're malnourished, you're needing something to sustain you and keep you going. He shows up in this condition, he and his men are without any food. He says in the text, give me all your common bread or give me what loaves are present here. Ahimelech responds, I don't have any common bread to provide you and your men. I only have the holy bread. That would essentially be if if you went back in time and you kind of think of it and conceive of it. Here's a golden table, you could say. There's a golden table, and here is the bread of the presence. that sat on this golden table and was dedicated unto God. This only the priests are to eat of. So now the disciples are walking through the grain, pulling some grain. The Pharisees say, you're working, that's unlawful. And Jesus says, haven't you read this story before? What's exactly going on here? Well, if the priests are the only ones who are to eat of it, and David standing at the tent is not a priest, and neither are the men who are traveling with him, what's about to take place? Another question for us just in brief as we begin to answer. Why does our Lord cite this situation as an example of what he and his disciples are doing? And the answer clarifies this debate over the law of, oh, I know you've read it. But you haven't really read it. Let me give you an example Now we're through the example. What did the example instruct? What took place between David and Halimelech and his men in the showbread? What does this mean? The answer is this. In that historical situation, the priest, looking at David, David has no food. Neither do the men who are with him. They cannot simply come out and get some. They're fleeing from Saul. How are they going to be able to maintain their flight? Of course, David misrepresents the situation as though he's on expedition with Saul, so on and so forth. But how would they be nourished? How would they receive food? How will this occur? The priest standing there looking at David had to make a judgment call regarding what? The nature and purpose of the ceremonial law. I've already read the law. I know the ten things. You've read it, but not really read it. When you've read it and it's become a a weapon of oppression, you haven't really read it. You've missed its nature, its purpose, and its design. So Jesus cites an example of a priest who had to make a judgment call regarding the nature and purpose of the ceremonial law. He had to, at that moment, gauge the appropriateness of maintaining the ceremonial law. This is appropriate. Here's David. This is appropriate. Here's David. I have to gauge the appropriateness of maintaining the ceremonial distinctions and law while, at the same time, neglecting a basic human need. At core, in this situation of adhering to ceremonial law and neglecting a basic human need. This situation, the question of the nature and purpose of the law comes to bear. Is the law, now think of the disciples plucking grain, being nourished, being sustained. Think about a disabled man who has a withered hand, disabled and crippled and being healed, wait a minute, that's works. Then let me ask you, is the law upheld when necessity, mercy, compassion are denied? I've read the law. It says, do not work. Is the law upheld when deeds of necessity, mercy, and compassion are denied? This is the point of Jesus' engagement with the Sabbath, with the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. It strikes at the heart of our understanding and God's purpose in the law for our good. Essentially, Jesus is asking the Pharisaical and the legalist mind, is it God's intention in the law to destroy or to care for and sustain our lives? The Pharisee had turned the law into an instrument and weapon of oppression in order to, prove, to pump up their situation as self-righteous and self-made holiness by separation. It maintains their proper distinctions of what they perform, of righteousness and performance versus the common folk. And God here in Christ asks, is it God's intention in the law to destroy or to care for and sustain life? This is the question you look down in verse 9 of chapter 6. He simply says, but he knew their thoughts, verse 8. He knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, this di- disabled individual, on a Sabbath works principle, come and stand here. And he rose and stood here, stood there. Verse 9, Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life, or to destroy it. Is the law upheld when necessity, mercy, and compassion are denied? Is that God's intention through our understanding of the law? You see, loving God, of what Christ is addressing here with the Pharisees as they seek to even use the law this incorrect way, he explains even to us as we read, loving God according to his law is not simply in the absence of sin, but it includes the active pursuit of holiness and righteousness through that very same law. This The legalist doesn't understand, whether it be us in our pursuits of self-righteousness, proofs of our purity, this legalist mindset doesn't understand. We're always adding more engagements, more rules, more traditions for the achievement of greater righteousness. So what do we do with this mindset? What do we do as Pharisees with a mindset that says, I can perform. Tell me the ten things I have to not do. We turn to the gospel, which is the statement of our Lord that he will expand upon through Luke's gospel. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This will become clear across Luke's gospel, that the gospel repudiates this type of self-performance, this type of seeing the law as a tool in legal hands to achieve self-made righteousness. We, the gospel, repudiates this to say that we could never achieve, even on the one hand, the absence of sin. We don't even read the law then. Oh, I've read it. No, you haven't read it if you think that through it you can even achieve on the one hand the absence of your sin, let alone could you ever achieve the righteousness therein required. We mishandle the law, our legal mindset, with self-reform, seeking to be self-righteous, above and distinct from others. We mishandle the law in handling this way unto our spiritual peril. This is what Jesus directs the Pharisees toward. So the question is, what do we do with that legal mindset that we seem to not be able to shake? What do we do with that sense of self-worth and that sense of self-made righteousness whereby we're able to leverage ourselves as more righteous than our neighbor? We mishandle this. Yes, what are we to do? Come to Christ as he declares himself as he has freely offered to you in the gospel. Come to him who is the Lord of the Sabbath, him in whom we find our rest, our righteousness, the remission of our sins. You see, here in this text, in a legal mindset, looking, even reading the law that way, that you would deny mercy, necessity, and compassion in order to uphold, The law of God declares that works is the basis for my justification. Therefore, I don't care about my neighbor. I don't care about his plight. I'm working and adhering to what works for my sense of self righteousness. But in the gospel, in conclusion, it is faith, not works that lays hold of Christ for everything. We lay hold of Christ for both aspects, the remission of our sins on the one hand, the absence of our wickedness, and on the other, the requirement of righteousness. Faith lays hold of Christ for everything. let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for understanding the distinction between the law and the gospel. We thank you indeed that you are the Son of Man and Lord of the Sabbath, providing us with the rest that we need, remission of sins and righteousness imputed that is received through faith alone. Lord, help us in our legal mind to lay down our arms in seeking of self-righteousness. Lord, that we would rest upon you as you are freely offered to us in the gospel, having the remission of our sins and righteousness imputed through faith alone. Let us pursue your law then, Lord, as those justified, as our grateful obedience before you, not as a tool or instrument to harm, injure, or prop self up, but to pursue in humble gratitude for the salvation we've received.